Welcome back, everyone. This is Zach Graham, your co-host of Yang Speaks. Some quick housekeeping updates, and we're going to dive into our episode today. Look, obviously, we've said this before, but we keep seeing comments <laughs> uh, both on social media and YouTube. So we want to remind everyone, look, obviously, the Yang Speaks podcast has been a little bit different since he ran for mayor earlier this year. You've had a lot less of Yang speaking and, frankly, more of Zach speaking and recently more of Carly speaking and that's been fun. We've got a ton of new fans, a ton of different types of content. But of course, we got to get back to our regular scheduling, scheduled programming, which is Andrew Yang speaking on his own podcast. So folks, have no fear. We are getting back to Yang speaking all the time, every Monday and Thursday. It's going to start this fall. It'll be right around his book launch on October 5th. So stay tuned on how that works. There's a lot of new exciting things coming down the pike. New guests, old guests, new content, new types of shows, a new studio, The Works. But at the moment, we're all taking a much-needed break, and you should too, because we're all human, and it's summer, and it's awesome, so go outside and enjoy it after being cooped up for COVID for too long. So today, we've got a re-air with a conversation we had with Mark Cuban back when we first launched this podcast, and it's really powerful if you didn't catch it then. And it's fitting, given that Mark Cuban just gave a great endorsement for Andrew's new book, Forward, which comes out again on October 5th. So more to come, folks. Enjoy your summer, and if you're gung-ho right now, Mark Cuban Joining Yang Speaks back. We're re-airing it right now. Take a listen. I love the idea you proposed to try and get money back into the market. You said, look, we should give everyone a thousand bucks every two weeks. Use it or lose it. You know, I love these kind of conversations, man. I love just to get into the, into the weeds and just be challenged. Um, so one of the things that you and I disagreed on before, though, at this point, you're, you know, like open to anything is universal basic income. Sure. Happy, love to discuss it, obviously. And um, if I'm wrong, I need to change my mind. I'll be the first to do it. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the titan of entrepreneurship, the owner of the world champion from a number of years back, the Dallas Mavericks of the NBA, Mr. Mark Cuban. Mark, welcome. You had to put the from a number of years back in there, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, man. Like, oh, uh, give you a hard time. And, and you guys were everyone's favorites because you, you beat like the evil heat. <laughs> yeah, it, was fun run. it was absolutely a blast. That's amazing. So, uh, Mark, you and I met a, a number of years ago back in the White House. It was you, me, Damon, John, um, yep. uh, and, and some other entrepreneurs. And fast forward, and here we are in like the midst of the greatest crisis, uh, certainly, that um, I can remember. And I have to say, hats off to you, because you've been one of the foremost voices um, trying to figure out how we can rebuild the economy. Um, and, and I've loved so many of your ideas. I wanted us to talk today about what the heck we would do to rebuild the economy for the average American, the average small business owner. I have been blown away by the fact that you're on Twitter trying to help people navigate the PPP, um, that, that you're trying to help small businesses and entrepreneurs in any way you, we can. And I am right there with you. Like, I feel like you're one of the people that actually understands the gravity of the situation we're in. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. Look, we're both investors in companies and we see what's happening to those companies. You know, 20% um, of them, 25% actually are benefiting from this because change in demand patterns. But the other 75% are struggling. And so I see what they're going through, the things I'm having to do to try to help them, what's working and what's not working. And the least I can do is try to help others in similar circumstances. 
Well, I, I have to say, you've been a voice of urgency, uh, which, which I love and appreciate uh, because it is urgent. Uh, you know, we, we've lost 40 million jobs that we know about. And the economists that have dug into this think that 40% of those jobs are gone for good. We're talking about 16 million jobs gone. And the Great Recession cost us 8.8 .8 million jobs um, at the trough. So you're looking at almost two times the Great Recession in perpetuity. Um, that's what frightens me the most. Yeah, it's scary as hell. I mean, so if you look at job creation, right, historically, I think either one of us would have said, you know, leave it to the market. You know, we can create X number of hundreds of thousands of jobs per month, X number of millions of jobs per year. But when all of a sudden in a three month period, effectively, you find yourself with 40 million people unemployed, 21.2 collecting unemployment on a continuous basis, who knows how many millions or 10 plus million are now underemployed or have their hours or wages cut back. So we're in a very unique set of circumstances where you can't go back to the old, the old ways where you said, just leave it to the market, you know, or let's just do, you know, um, QE and, and just get more liquidity into the system. That'll take care of it because it's just not going to work. If you and I and every entrepreneur started as many businesses as we possibly could and supported every big business that we possibly could, they're not going to be able to hire enough people fast enough to really yes. create a groundswell of employment and, and change the game. And that's what we need to do. We need to recognize we're in a different set of circumstances that we've never experienced before in the modern era, um, and particularly in the digital era. And we have to adapt and we have to be agile. And, and I think that's where I've been pushing and I know you have been too. Yeah, that's why I was so excited to sit down with you. Um, you called it America 2.0. And uh, one thing I love about uh, your background is that you started out like running a bar in Indiana. Like, you know, you've run like, <laughs> you've run like real businesses. Yeah. So, it, it, so, so it's not always been like Mark Cuban on TV, like dispensing oh, checks no. and advice. I was broke as a joke, man. I got, I, when I moved to Dallas, I was living six guys in a three bedroom apartment. I was working as a bartender at night. Um, I got a job at a software store, got fired and had no choice but to start my own business. And, you know, I was in the same position as every entrepreneur. If I didn't sell something, I didn't eat. And literally, <laughs> my buddies and I, my roommates and I, we used to go to the local grocery store and we'd wait until midnight when they marked down the price of chicken. And then we'd buy up all the <laughs> stuff in our fridge. I mean, just, the, you know, the things that you have to do. But yeah, I've been through the fear of thinking my business isn't going to make it. I've been through the fear of businesses not making it, you know, or the experience of businesses not making it. So I know what it's like. Yeah, me too. My first business uh, flopped terribly. Um, like I remember showing up to, in my case, it was like the cozy sandwich shop because they had like free bread samples. So I would just like take <laughs> take the bread and just like walk out. I get, I get like 30 pounds because we go to the one place where you can get one beer and they had all the fried mushrooms and peanuts and all the junk food you can eat. And we'd have our one beer for $3 and just eat up. So I, I feel your pain. Yeah, so so we understand what's going on uh, at the ground level, and the you know the the tough thing is like our government doesn't have the systems in place to really try and get to the ground level. Yep. Um, you know, we we set up the PPP, which you said um, fell short of its goals for a number of reasons. Yeah. So to go through that, um, PPP and conception was great, right? Payroll protection is just one inch word says exactly what it means. If we would have gotten enough money into the hands of small to medium-sized businesses quickly enough, they would have been able to retain people on their payroll. 
that would have prevented those people from going on unemployment, which would have prevented them from getting that $600 extra stimulus. But once we didn't get that money into businesses' hands quickly enough, they did go on to unemployment. And not only did that create a set of disincentives because you had 68% of people making more on unemployment than they did in their previous job, and that made it, you know, them not wanting to go back to work, but that delay also turned companies into zombie companies where you didn't have, you, you didn't know quite when you were going to get the PPP money. You weren't sure when you were going to be able to open or how much you were going to be able to be open. You didn't know what the sales or demand was going to be for your product or service if and when you were open. And you couldn't bring back your employees because they were, they're going to be continuing to get their unemployment until July 31st. So a lot of companies are in this nowhere land that we're finding yeah. ourselves in right now. And so rather than recognizing this is the problem, we're, we're, we're trying to just pretend it's not a problem. Yes. You know? And look, and, and I don't want to make it seem like any one party's in blame. Everybody's to blame. You know, the, the Democrats delayed things. They wanted all these different fundings inside of it. And that delayed things a little bit. The Republicans, the way they process it through the Treasury Department, made it so difficult for banks that, you know, that slowed things down and made them act like banks instead of act like acting like they needed to solve a problem. And so nobody right now is just recognizing we've got, you know, 3.7 million companies, whatever the number is, that receive PPP at some level who are zombie companies in a lot of respects. And we've got to address their problems. And most importantly, we've got to address the, the demand issue because until there's demand for products and services, businesses aren't going to be able to stay open no matter how much money you give them. Now, and I love the idea you proposed to try and get money back into the market, which is you said, look, we should give everyone a thousand bucks every two weeks, use it or lose it. It like disappears if you don't spend it within 14 days. Uh, and I gotta say, that would be one way to get us to spend all that money. Um, yep. but I, I'd love the idea, like, uh, did, like uh, because it would force us to, to actually um, not save, because right now I think you were the one who pointed out we're saving more money than we ever have. In 40 years, 14.4% savings rate and increasing the most it's been in more than 40 years. And so if everybody's saving money, then nobody's spending it. And, you know, this all comes down to confidence, Andrew. And, you know, people aren't going to spend money unless they're confident that they're going to be able to either get a job or keep a job. You know, there's just so much uncertainty. And the, we're past the point now of just giving people the money. We've got to get to a point now where we've got to have people spending money and get that multiplier effect. And what I suggested was that we, we did it a little bit, to do it a little bit different than the stimulus checks, the $1,200 that we give, um, because people saved a lot of that where they could. But the one place that we missed in that $1,200, college kids. You know, yeah, they weren't eligible for that, for the most part. Yeah. Who spends all their money? College kids, right? Because they have everything they, they've got to spend. I mean, and, and they're not savers. And so in what I proposed was starting with college kids and effectively the same eligibility otherwise for the $1,200, you would get a debit card. And that, and that having a debit card, debit card goes to your point, we have no way to give funding to people right now. We saw what happened with the $1,200 where tens of millions of people had to wait for a check and some were still waiting. So as a country, we need to have an ability to direct deposit to every citizen, right? Because if and when this happens again, 
that problem needs to be cured in advance. But I digress. But with my what I was proposing is a debit card where effectively $1,000 every two weeks for two months, and you have to spend it in 10 days. Doesn't matter what you spend it on, but you have to spend it. We'll tell retailers you can't get cash back in when someone uses the this debit card, and then let them go out there and spend where they may. If it's rent, if it's food, whatever. I love it, man. We should call it the Cuban card. Uh, nah, you'd be the most okay. popular man in uh, in the country because everyone would be <laughs> like, "I just used my Cuban card." Like, you know, on drinks. It does. It, it does a little bit. Um, you know, I had a similar idea. I don't know if, if this is complimentary. Um, one thing I'm uh, I'm deeply uh, concerned about is that 30% of small businesses may close forever uh, because of what you and I are describing. So I was trying to think about ways we could get more money into small businesses and a time limitation on spending is one, but I thought there might be a way to actually say like, look, this money can only spent be spent at a locally owned small business. Like you can't spend it on Amazon and the gang. Yeah, it's hard though, right? Because A, a lot of the businesses aren't open and B, you, you gotta do, you gotta let, it's hard to regulate what people spend on. As much as I'd like to see local businesses, again, it's the right idea. But once you start negotiating where it's spent, then all the politics come into play. So do you allow this or do you allow that? What if your community doesn't have this type of store or that type of store, right? What if it's only a big national chain in your small town in Texas? So I, again, I think if you encourage people to spend locally, a lot of people will recognize that now's the time to do it. But if you require them to spend locally, you get into all the political ramifications and then it, that just delays it. And speed is the variable we have to solve for first. I'm with you, time is of the essence. One of the reasons why I, I'm, I'm still um, convinced that the local uh, spending can work is that there have been some college towns, to your point, that actually have like, um, Ithaca Bucks or like yeah. whatever the heck it is. Yeah, <laughs> like it's and it's only good at like and uh, those no, small businesses. There's nothing that says you can't have local programs that you make it available to to support, right? So whether it's Bloomington, Indiana Bucks or Ithaca Bucks or whatever it may be, Georgetown Bucks, you know, saying yes, we will you can't get cash back, but we encourage you to buy your local barter currency, right? Whatever it may be. And maybe that currency gives you um a multiplier effect, right? We'll give you 105% of your stimulus because these are only available to spend locally. I'm all for that. That's a great idea. Uh, so, so this is money in people's hands and consumer demand. Uh, and one thing that you said we should consider, which I agree with, is just jobs, jobs, jobs. Like anything we can do to create jobs out there in the marketplace. Uh, and so you've identified at least a, a few needs that we have that everyone can see. Uh, hundreds of thousands of contact tracers and people to work at, you know, uh, like actually yep. uh, identifying what's going on with COVID-19. Um, I, I would definitely put infrastructure in this category. Um, you know, one of the concerns I have is like, how quickly can we hire uh, large numbers of people uh, and train them, create a new bureaucracy if it's done through the government? Like, because uh, like you said, speed is of the essence, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that we have to essentially do everything we can to drag more right. people into the workforce and solve some of the problems that, that we can see in front of us. Yeah, because that's the key. When you do it for solving problems, I'm not saying dig a hole, fill a hole, right? That, that accomplishes nothing, you know, but you, we have programs like AmeriCorps, right? There's 40% of the population I read either has a vulnerability to COVID or um, is, in, is in the elderly demographic, right? 
So there are 40% of the population that's going to need help in one manner or the other as we get through this. And there's organizations like AmeriCorp, which already are, have the infrastructure in place to hire people. The only issue is increasing their budgets to allow them to hire more. So that, that's for elderly in-home care and support care. You know, and I think that's critically important because you saw what happened in New York. Right. There was something that came out that said, boy, I'm Mr. Statistics today. I don't know why, but 60 percent. It's because you're talking to Andrew Yang, the math guy. It's like I rub off on you, Mark. You know, (laughs) I I love to dig out with math. And so of the people who had COVID in New York, 60 percent are people who are shut in at home who need outsiders to come in and help them. They can't go out and do it for themselves. And so there's an immediate need that AmeriCorps could train that doesn't have to be a high skill job, just have to be a high compassion job. And you can create across the country, you can create millions of those, you know, and that's a productive job that enhances the the economy and really provides support. Same with tracking and tracing. Right now you're forcing local communities and states to find out what's happening and where. And when you limit it to states and there's no federal standards. Yeah, the the virus doesn't exactly adhere to state lines. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. And and so, you know, how, what type of models do you use and what type of analytics do you use? And how do you compare those from one state to another? And how do you integrate them all? So you end up having these siloed um, vats of data that may not be compatible. The same problem we have with healthcare right now with insurance companies and states. And so having this on a federal basis allows us to singularize the data and also hire the, the data workers, the computer programmers, the analytical people, the healthcare people that can do the analysis of it so we can track it nationally and potentially even globally. And so those are the types of jobs, and same with testing, right? Same type of issue. Those are millions of jobs when you add them up that are productive, that have a multiplier effect, that have, even if they're just transitional, they may not be permanent, at least give people some confidence that they'll be able to keep their job for a couple of years. This crisis is certainly... Uh, to me, cemented the uh, the need for a universal healthcare system that is independent of employment. Because if you have 40 million people who don't have jobs and they still are going to need healthcare, like we we need to make sure that you can actually still take care Absolutely. of yourself. You know, my attitude. I'm not a fan of single payer, right? I'm a fan of a hybrid environment. And what I've always suggested, and and actually I have a, a study that I funded with the Ram Corp that we're redoing right now because of all the issues of the pandemic. But effectively, it's a safety net, if you will. If you have your employer insurance, keep it, that's great. If you're on Medicare, that's great. If you're on Medicaid, that's great. If you're ACA eligible, USA becomes the insurer. But the key element that makes it different from traditional insurance is that you don't pay any premiums until you use the system. So if you're 20 and healthy or 27 is a better age and healthy, and you you don't need to use the system, you're not paying any premiums. I had it tested three times. The savings for individuals was $63 billion a year, and all those 45 million people who are ACA eligible would be completely 100% covered immediately. No enrollment, no nothing, immediate coverage. Yeah, and one of the things that you see that I see is the epic inefficiency in our current healthcare yeah, uh, delivery and infrastructure. That's how you can save tens of billions of dollars. Absolutely. <laughs> just by wringing some of the, the inefficiency yeah, out. And that administration cost, that's a function of there being so many different insurers and so many different healthcare plans. You know, if you look at Medicare Advantage, there's 24, 2,500 different plans. You know, that means hospitals have to have administrators and coding elements for every single one of those plans. 
And that's crazy. And that's why I call this thing the 10 plan. Under the 10 plan, you know, there's just one program and you pay Medicare pricing to the hospitals. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the biggest scam, Andrew, the ultimate scam right now in healthcare. I've turned into a healthcare geek. So they, they have this group called MedPAC who does all the an analysis for how Medicare rates are set. They're being told that hospitals say they lose money on Medicare rates. The reality is it's a great lie. Hospitals are not losing money at Medicare rates. They just throw everything plus the kitchen sink into their cost. Into that bucket. Look at Toronto, Canada, which has effectively, not complete single player, but effectively single player. And look at New York City. A hospital in Toronto and a hospital in New York. If we line them up, all the costs are going to be the same. The cost for doctors are the same. The cost for real estate, nurses, supplies, overhead, everything. So the question I asked was, why does Toronto pay X dollars for a procedure to the province of Ontario, that hospital, and it's far less than what uh, a hospital New York? It's like two and a half X or whatever it is. Yeah, and they claim poverty. It's some, there's a disconnect there somewhere, and the disconnect is because they throw in all these incremental costs to make it look like their costs are higher, which pushes up the pricing to all the insurance programs, which makes all of our healthcare costs more. And so if we get down to the cost basis of what hospitals truly pay, and now's the time to do it with all this reset, um, then we can push down the pricing of healthcare costs significantly. Yeah, amen. Uh, Did when you, you and I talked, time on that? <laughs> no, I know. And when you and I talked um, during the campaign, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you know, you, you were talking about how uh, food insecurity is, is like a major health issue and that yep. if you want to try and make people healthy, you got to get good food and nutrition uh, yep. uh, available to them. Yep. Yeah, there's no question. If you're not healthy, where you, you, if you're not confident where you live, if you don't have enough food to eat, you don't have basic care, then you're going to be at a disadvantage the rest of your life. So uh, right now, you have an entrepreneur's approach to rebuilding the country. You've called it America 2.0, which I, I then um, started running around uh, uh, stealing from you. You know, <laughs> credit to you if anyone asks. I'm crediting sure you right now. I'm somebody. I, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things that you and I um, disagreed on before, though, at this point, you're, you know, like open to anything is universal basic income, which you know yeah. that like uh, that I, I uh, ran I know. Uh, on it. Um, and at the time, like uh, you were not wholeheartedly positive on, on the idea, like um, would love to talk through what your biggest uh, sure. uh, reservations were and whether or not you still have those reservations or whether you think that, that this is uh, something we should be looking harder at. Sure, happy, love to discuss it, obviously. Um, I'm for CBI, caretaker basic income, all right? 100% for because that's a job and that's a productive job that improves society dramatically. You know, and I think we do need to be providing economic support to people who are caretakers for their parents, their kids, their grandparents, whoever it may be, stay at home and don't have a traditional job. Absolutely, positively. Because the key element in my mind and why I'm not a big fan of UBI is the concept of productivity. You know, and I, I know this sounds awful, but, you know, to paraphrase the old John Kennedy line, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? I think for us to get through this quickly or as quickly as we possibly can, the jobs that we pay for from the federal government has to have an element of productivity as opposed to just choice. Now, I'm not saying we force people into specific jobs. Every job has got to be optional. You can't 
you know, this is still the United States of America. You can't constrict people into doing specific jobs. You can't be like, you're now uh, like a road worker. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> it's like, like, yeah, like no. a chain gang. Yeah, exactly. Not, you know, if you want any money, no, no, not at all. I'm not saying we get rid of unemployment or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I think we have a very specific need to make jobs and things we pay for it as a federal government have some productive impact. Um, and that's not to say under UBI, all the things that people do can't be productive and aren't often productive but it's not a necessity or a requirement of UBI. And that's my hesitancy. Well, so two things I'd say to that, Mark, and you know, you and I like agree on a lot of the big picture needs oh, for look, sure. Hey, I love open conversations like this are awesome. This is how I learn. And I'm, if I'm wrong, I need to change my mind. I'll be the first to do it. Yeah. And I know that about you too. <laughs> so so uh, I think, uh, I uh, couldn't agree with you more that if you're like a stay-at-home mom or uh, someone who's taking care of your aging relative, it's like we need to get you uh, basic support and probably the person you're taking care of. Um, uh, one hesitancy I have about having the this definition of productivity baked into whether or not you get this income, uh, like I, I feel like our government may not be the like best arbiter of what is and isn't productive. And if you were to take, let's say, even one of us, like at some point in our entrepreneurial past, like our parents or whomever would be like, that's wholly unproductive or whatever, whatever you're doing, right. because no, I, like they, they think that our, like, you know, our business is never going to work or our rock band is never going to work out or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. Look, again, there, there are, there's value to any income, any money that you make available to somebody, no question about it. And people will use it differently. But where we are right now, again, timing is a critical variable. And so for where we are, we need, I would rather as inefficient and awful and terrible and ineffective as government is, this is really just a mass play, right? It, it, you know, it, it, it's a scattershot and see what sticks. And we are Which is what they did in the New Deal during the Great Depression. It's not like they had some brilliant plan and we're like, we can do all this stuff. They were just like, let's just do everything Throw it that, up against that the we wall can. See what yeah. sticks, right? And you try to make your wins big wins and your losses little losses. And, you know, I wouldn't, there's nobody right now that I get excited about in government who's capable of this. Maybe you can be that guy. Maybe I'll be that guy. Maybe together we'll be that guy. Or, or Together, person. man. We'll, we'll be like Entrepreneur Voltron. <laughs> yeah, right? right? But to me, that's what's critical, right? And so... You know, in previous times, you know, I would have I would have been more open to the traditional UBI argument because time it wasn't nearly as critical. You know, we were humming but, along. But but don't you think pure UBI is like the fastest thing we could do because it's just like press that button, like get the cash out, and I don't need to have some process in place to figure out. Well, effectively, like, that's what I said. But there's got to be, you know, in my mind, you want to have a point where they say, okay, I've got to go out, go back to work, right? Because the other side of it is. If companies don't have, so look what's happening. Here's, here's my other principal argument against UBI. Look what's happening right now with people who are making more from unemployment because of the CARES bonus than they were in their previous job. 68% of people are, are in that position. Yeah, it's a problem. They yeah, they don't want to go back to work. And so now you've got these companies that are unable to hire people, and those are the small businesses that need employees. Now, I recognize $1,000, and I'm not, talking, I'm not saying that UBI recipients are lazy or don't want to work or anything like that at all, but just the economics of it are $1,000, you know. Well, well, here's the thing, Mark. A lot of those people aren't going back to work because they have unemployment benefits that obviously they went back to work, they'd lose those benefits. Right. If, if they were in a situation where they could go back to the bowling alley and they got to keep the 1000 bucks a month, like I, I think that that's actually a 
no, no. tougher decision for them than the clear decision of like, hey, you get this money, but if you go back to work, you lose it. But isn't the extra $600 effectively short-term UBI? I, well, and, and that's something like I would never have wedded that $600 unemployment benefit to not working. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, like right. I would have been like, hey, let's. Right. No, that's, and that's a great point, right? But still, the reality is like the 25-year-old me might, or 21-year-old me might have just said, look, my thousand bucks, I've got five roommates. I don't need to work. And, you know, then the productive me might not have been in society. Oh, I guess arguably productive me might not have been in society. Well, and, and this goes back to something else you've championed because uh, you're you're looking at like a Swiss Army knife approach to what's going on in the economy. You're saying we should elevate the minimum wage to yeah. uh, like have a federal minimum wage of fifteen dollars. Which I, I I got the sense you were proposing that uh, across the board. Is that right? Yeah, because you, you got to make it so all businesses play by the same rules. And it was meant to be for eighteen and over only because you still want kids to be able to get that their job. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, by doing, if when you have these uh, transitional work programs like the testing, tracking, tracing, by paying them above that minimum wage, you also indirectly set the federal minimum wage. And the argument against it has been it'll damage smaller companies and smaller locations. But really where the, the negative impact has come from is the variability between communities and between states. So you just go across the state line and it's cheaper there so people move there. That's why it needs to be federally driven whether it's indirect by hiring enough people that pays a lot more than the minimum wage, or it's direct and to the point where anybody 18 or above, the number's $15. So one of the things that I think helps um, mitigate the issue you're describing is like, hey, people will go back to work, is like right now, a lot of these businesses are paying very, very low wages. And so if you're looking at like, so I agree with you that if you're like, uh, you have a fast food um, job that pays you like nine, 10 bucks an hour, you'd be like, wait a minute, like, do, am I really going to do this work if, if like, I'm not going to starve to death in the absence of this job? Uh, right. But then, but so it, it uh, requires employers to uh, raise their game. Uh, and I think it sounds like that's one of the things you want employers to do is to like, just pay people a living wage. Right. But at the same time, you could go the other way as well, right? You don't want to be subsidizing that fast food restaurant to pay less because they know they're getting the $1,000 um, in UBI or whatever that number is. So it's like, hey, you're, you just turned 18, you're getting your UBI, come work for me for X minus, as opposed to I need to pay you a, a, you know, a, a living wage. So, you know, like for my companies, I made sure, one of the things that, was, that terrified me and would have embarrassed me mightily is going through the companies that I run and control is if any of my companies were on government assistance. Right, because it meant I wasn't like like, like those fast food restaurants that be like, hey, here's how you access your welfare benefits. Like, yeah, like you, were, you, know, you were like, let's let's keep my companies from ever having that headline. Right. <laughs> it's embarrassing to me. That's the ultimate socialism to me, where you know the government is subsidizing my payroll. To me, that, that doesn't get any worse than that personally. Right, everybody's got to make their own decision with their own money, and so you run. And in some cases, it can be counterintuitive from a UBI perspective, but you run the risk of subsidizing those businesses where those people are saying, you want this job? Here's what it's going to pay. Take it or leave it. Yeah, I, I understand. And I agree with you on a, on a higher minimum wage um, uh, as a way to, to help get people back into the workforce. Um, so the, some of the ideas you'd proposed, which I agree with uh, virtually all of them in terms of trying to employ people, we have uh, 
contact tracing and healthcare. Um, we have infrastructure, which I assume you're on board with. Uh, and, yeah, and uh, we can talk. About, I'd love to talk about what type of infrastructure. What does that really mean, right? Yeah, please. Because there's infrastructure 1.0, <laughs> and then there's infrastructure for America 2.0. And so, if you look his, at historically at infrastructure, you know you were building highways between cities that leveraged up commerce. You built um, you built railroads and, and you built airports that leveraged up commerce. But the way we've been talking about infrastructure is just to improve those railroads and bridges and and highways and just you know remove the potholes because those are make those are shovel ready jobs and that's not a bad thing i think infrastructure should incorporate those but i think infrastructure needs to think bigger and be more leverageable because that's what previous big impact infrastructure um, programs have done right and so i think we need to start looking at investing in robotics because if we really want to kick China's ass, we can't do it by Which pretending it's still the 1960s, right? We're not, first in, we're not first in robotics. You've got Germany ahead of us. You've got Japan ahead of us. You've got China tied probably ahead of us now. And as a government, all four of those countries are making significant investments. Investments, yes. Right. We are doing nothing. We've got a lot of great robotic software companies, but we buy our robots from overseas. And the bigger challenge is, just to create an analogy, let's just say there's a billion products made overseas, right? And we want, and they're made overseas instead of here because they're less expensive to make there. And we want to bring back half of them, 500 million products. The only way we're going to be able to make them less expensive than company, countries who have, don't have the environmental protections and don't have the wages that we have is through robotics. Now, the concern from a lot of people is that that will displace, displace jobs. Well, if we do it on scale, the, 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 the economy that's built around robotics will be dramatically bigger than what we ever had in manufacturing recently. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's not like losing at robotics is a good jobs plan, <laughs> which is what the option is. Yeah, because like in any business, you always have to ask, how's your competition going to kick your ass, right? And China, Germany, Russia, Japan, et cetera, they're not sitting still. They're saying America's not investing in this, so that's the exact right place for us to invest because we literally can get a huge advantage. And to add to this, Andrew, what I, I'd also tax robots. So like I have a company that I've invested in and they do welding robots. And they charge the equivalent of a traditional welder, but they really fill in the blanks, right? They work um, shifts that they can't find welders to work. There'd be nothing wrong with doing the same type of tax, FICA type tax on both sides of a robot, if you will, so that we tax it at 12.4%, both sides, take 9% of that, put it into the social security fund or the general treasury, take 3.x% of that and continue to invest it in robotics as our future infrastructure, because we have to be able to compete as a country. And the crazy part is we have so much intellectual capacity and, and productivity that we're just not investing in right now. And that's our greatest asset along with our entrepreneurial spirit. Yet right now, the current administration wants to believe it's 1965. Yeah, it's, it's so backward looking. Uh, we need tens, tens of thousands of people to help install 5G equipment and rollout. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. that, that's something we're behind in. We don't have like a native supplier um, again. Uh, we're yeah, in we're investing in software-defined networks, right? Because that's part of the problem, right? We're so dependent on Huawei because they came in and were subsidized and were so cheap, right? Other nations are the same. The only way you're going to build around that is with software-defined networks. And we need to, to really look at that. And like to your point, 
all across the country, rural, urban, everywhere, you know, we're going to need that to compete. And it's a great idea. Yeah, we need, uh, we need rural broadband. I was in parts of the country that did not have broadband access. And that struck crazy. me as, yeah, as crazy. You were just like, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, Especially now, because this is, is not going to be our last pandemic or risk of pandemic, right? There's going to be other viral monsters that come after us in some way, shape, or form, or other issues that occur. And you made the best point earlier, and this you add the 5G to it, we don't have a digital way to communicate with each citizen, right? We have no way to put money into an account where we need it. We have no way to communicate, you know, anything of, of any value between us. And in rural environments, it's 10x worse, right? And so if we're going to create, you know, we talk about going off into, you know, how you sit around and go, okay, what's the craziest idea I can come up with to change things? And so one of the things um, builds off of your idea, we're having digital access to everybody, but having everybody have a digital bank account. doesn't matter yes. where. Yes, I, I proposed have- like a digital citizenship portal, citizen.us, and yes. we could just drop money into the account yes. there and then you just connect it to whatever account you want. Absolutely, and I thought that was brilliant, right? Now let me add something to that. Whenever we go through these recessions slash great recessions slash hope it's not worse circumstances like we're in now, where the government bails out companies or invests in companies indirectly, Let's just use, we'll use what Warren Buffett did with um, Goldman Sachs, I think it was, right? Where he gave them $5 billion and got options and warrants on top of that. And when it was all said and done, ended up making $12 million. He grossed 17 May 12. What if that was the United States Treasury doing the same deal? What if we then took all that, right, and divided it by $330 million or whatever the population is on that day, and we deposited one 330th million of each of that into everybody's account. Finally, for the first time ever, everybody will have appreciable assets. And for public or private companies, you know, just like they tell you, if you can invest when you're young and have it- Yeah, you know, appreciate value, compound appreciate, interest, right? most powerful force in the world. Exactly, right? Now you get that same, you get that same progression, right? Because the biggest inhibitor to closing the gap and in income inequality is that the, the people at the bottom live paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't matter how much that paycheck is. No, oh, the, the bottom 50% pay. of Americans own zero stock. And so like yeah. trumpeting what's going on with the stock market's irrelevant to, to half well, our people. Exactly, exactly. So we can change that. So anything the, the, the Treasury or the United States of America invests in that we were smart enough to negotiate a return of assets, particularly that can be digitized like stock or whatever, um, warrants, options, et cetera, let's just split it up right? And give everybody their share. Now, and with the stakeholder ideas, society, it would be transformative, Mark, just because everyone would feel like they were actually participating. Like as right now, uh-oh. so many Americans feel like there's all this stuff going on and, and they're just like looking up being like, what the heck is happening? Whereas if yeah, they have an and- account, they can see the value, they can see it appreciate. And one of the things that like I'm fighting for is like our data that produces value. It's like, why are people not sharing in that? And that can get put into that that same account. Well, exactly right. You can deposit anything in there. You can protect it now. You know, security obviously is going to be important. Um, But yeah, that's how, until you get people who are working paycheck to paycheck, until you get them appreciable assets, maybe it's a house, you know, that's a little bit tougher. But these digital, these assets, you know, shares of stock, options, warrants, that effectively we all own anyways, because it's our taxpayer money, that gives everybody a chance to have appreciable assets 
And that's the way to close the income inequality gap. Crazy idea. You know, it'll take 50 years before anybody considers it. You but. kidding, man? We're going to get this thing done. Like, you know, <laughs> if it's if I got 50 years, we're going to get this thing done in 50 days. Um, we're actually working on the citizenship portal um, and, the data, and the data property project. Um, you know, so we'll have like the structure set up where all we need now is the government to put some money in the account and uh, we'll be golden. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Talking to you, man, it's like, I wish that there were someone like you, like, uh, and I know you're, you're very loosely affiliated with advising the government on the response, um, but, but it is very frustrating to me and many other Americans where um, you see just like so much ineptitude and bureaucracy and like lack of urgency and lack of follow through and lack of accountability. I mean, like for us trying to get people money, like we just freaking cash out to PayPal and Venmo people because like that's how people get money like now yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have millions of Americans like checking the IRS website, trying to figure out where they're going to get their money. Like the whole or, thing. Or look at New York State. Like most people have still not gotten their unemployment benefits or they're waiting hours just to apply, you know, not just New York, across the country. Uh, and you and I thought the same thing, Mark. It's like, why? the fuck do I have to call a phone line to get my benefits? Like, <laughs> like, like, what is that about? You get these like stories of people being on hold for hours and it was like, what is going on? I know, um, it's, it's just ridiculous. But look, I mean, you were the only technically literate candidate. Period, end of story. You know, and here we are in 2020. And that's just ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's inconceivable. And, and unfortunately now, you know, the candidates we voted on during the primaries, we didn't pick based on their ability to deal with the pandemic, you know? And so we're, we're caught in this never, never land as well. Um, so it, it's going to be an interesting election, but hopefully everybody gets out there and votes. Yeah, go out there and vote. It's the American thing to do. So Mark, we, you and I talked about this informally before, but uh, level with me, how close did you come to running for president? <laughs> My family had not voted it down, I would have done it. Wow. Was it like uh, everyone against you or was it like a split? Like, no, it was voter? everybody was it? against me because they didn't want to go through the grief. You know, you know, I, I've got three kids, 10, 13 and 16. My son, Jake, and two dollars. So very important family. ages. Yeah. Yeah. And it's difficult and, and it, it'd be brutal for them because everything I've ever done in my life, for better or worse, it would be a target. You know, all the, oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> all those drunk pictures of me online. I mean, I played rugby for God's sakes in college. There's every crazy picture from rugby parties, you know, that already got circulated when it was just me discussing it. And so I don't want to put them through it. Well, uh, your family is smart. Um, I certainly missed you out there on the trail. I think you would have added a ton. Well, um, I would have been an independent. You wouldn't have seen me on your trail. I would have gone as an independent. I really would have. Um, I think it's time. I'm not a fan of either party. No disrespect to what, what you were doing. None taken. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think, you know, you, have to, you ask yourself, as, a, as entrepreneurs, right, you ask yourself, you know, if things are being done the same way forever, is it still valid that they still should be done that way? The definition of insanity, up? isn't it? I mean, that's, it's one reason why people are getting so fed up. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so do we still need parties? Or, you know, or if we have these parties, and I know I, I saw you're interested in elements of democracy reform, like, do we need a third party? Do we need ranked choice voting? So people have some flexibility. I love right now you have this duopoly. Yeah, I love ranked choice voting. I'm a big fan. 
you know, people always ask me about another party, like I'm sure they asked you, I'm sure they suggested you run independently. The challenge is when you create another party, you still get the same party dynamics. It's just a different party. You know, you still get the, the desire for power. You still get the people who want to think they're in charge and set the agenda and think their agenda is the only way. So as much as you walk in thinking this is going to be different, it will be for a while, but at some point you get the same thing that happens in, in any organization where power has its, creates its own privileges and opportunities and you just turn into another party. And so that's why, I, to me, I'd rather do this as an independent. And, you know, honestly, I did some polling. And Oh, I want to know, hear this. No way. I mean, of course you would. Yeah, let, let's hear yeah, it. Yeah, right. And so with independence, I'll be curious to see what, what yours turned out to be, that in a three-way with Trump and Biden, I got like 70% of independence. But I did get, I got, um, I, I won't give you the exact numbers yet because I promised somewhere else that I'd release them. But um, I did good with Trump and not as well with Democrats. And I got about 25% in a three-way. And there just wasn't enough. I didn't see enough of the upside to fight my family over it. But 25% as an independent in a three-way. That, would, that would have been the all-time high, right? What did Pro get, 21? Like you would yeah, have 19 or 21 or something, yeah. And, yeah, and look, that, 15, that was in a perfect yet. scenario, right? To be honest, we didn't, you know, when you do these polling, you don't throw in all the bad stuff about your candidate. You know, you kind of play it up. But, you know, they, they yeah. thought that even with promotion, marketing and everything, you know, my lid was probably 25%. That's so interesting, Mark. I mean, you have a persona where I, I genuinely think the bad stuff would not have mattered. It'd be like Mark Cuban got drunk, like blah blah blah. It's like, of course he did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, that's okay with me. My skin is thick enough, right? I own a sports team. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot at some point, so I'm not worried about that. But my kids, that's a different beast. You know, my ten-year-old still thinks I hung the moon half the time. Uh, well, I, I will say, I mean, um, it was tough on my family and my, my boys are too young to know what the hell daddy was doing. Uh, they just saw <laughs> that I had a bus, uh, you know. Um, so your family, you know, family's wise. Um, but the, I think you as an independent would have been awesome. Like, I, I got to say, um, like you bring something very, very needed to the national stage. Uh, and I can tell too, like, you know, like, like you mean you and I met at the White House because we were just trying to do wholesome stuff, but yeah. like you're driven by trying to help the country. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, Andrew. I mean, I don't need another dollar. I'm set. My family's set. Their family, you know, future generations are set. So that, that's not of, of importance to me, but I love this country. I'm not in this position without this United States of America, without every opportunity that's been afforded to me. And I recognize I've been on both sides. You know, my parents didn't go to college until after I graduated and helped them go to college, right? That's a good son. My dad did upholstery on cars. You know, it's just, you know, I've, I've been on both sides. And, and you know, it's, I, I just like, it, it's fun to me to help small businesses. That's why I do Shark Tank. It sends the message the American dream is alive and well and that you can come from nothing and go out and start something. Damon John calls it the power of broke. And so I'm at that point in my life now that this is my way to contribute. You know, this is my way to help. Amen. And like, yeah, and like I've said many times, you don't have to be the leader to be a leader. You know, so whether or not I do run, there's still plenty of opportunity for me or anybody else for that matter to step up just like you're doing, right? And, you know, really bring topics to the forefront. You know, really inspire people to do things that change the game. Because when we get to the other side of this, the America 2.0, we're gonna look back in 10, 15 years and there's going to be 
how many, 5, 10, 20, 25 world-changing companies that are created because of the pandemic of 2020. And there's a better than 50-50 chance that most of them are going to come from someone who was down on their luck, down to their last dollar, that had an idea that everybody thought was crazy and made no sense at all. They went for it and it changed the game. You know, if I can inspire, you know, watching you when you inspire people like that, when you can get out there and just make it a little bit better, why wouldn't you do it? Well, that, that's the American spirit, man. That's why people love you. Uh, and uh, you're, you're a true patriot and definitely, if not the leader, a huge leader. Um, and when we're all using Cuban cards with this $1,000, <laughs> like, uh, use it or I'm lose it within 10 far. days, we're, gonna, <laughs> we're going to know. I'm just trying to do a quarantine here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look great. And uh, so thrilled to fight for America 2.0 alongside you, Mark. You're one of like Same, the big man, champions dude. of where the country needs to go. And uh, you and I need to help make it happen. Absolutely. I really enjoyed you having me on. Thank you for having me on. You know, I love these kind of conversations, man. I love just to get into the, into the weeds and just be challenged and challenge people because that's how we learn. That's what makes this country better. And that's why, you know, it's a bit, always been a big fan because you're always open-minded. You're always looking for a new direction and you're not afraid if somebody says they don't agree. That's that you're like me. That's the person we want to talk to. That could be the foundation of the new third party. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. All the best to the family and be well.